Uh, I, I turned it on today. Look at there. How about that? If you... Uh, <clears throat> some of you know what RUF is, and some of you don't. But if you know what RUF is, or even if you don't know what RUF is, and you would like to consider being an intern, I'd love to talk to you about it. Our intern program is for people who've graduated from college <clears throat> and who would like to go and explore their gifts in ministry for a couple of years in a strange, lonely place. That's just another town. Uh, worst year of your life is the first year out of college, so the worst year of your life is in front of you, which is good and bad. Uh, but we'd love for you to come spend one of the worst years of your life with us uh, in RUF, uh, helping uh, campus minister and students uh, get to know Christ, helping people come to know Jesus in a better way. Uh, it's a great program. I think we have about 62 interns right now, everywhere from Seattle and California to your own uh, Birmingham uh, and here and about. So after I speak, why don't if you're really interested, if you'd like to get information, uh, you may be a sophomore, you may be a freshman, you may be graduating in December, I'll meet you right outside on this porch after I speak at that... Um, picnic table, there's a white picnic table, and we'll just talk about it. I've got some information you can read, and uh, we'll do it from there. I think I'm going to try this from the steps today, and suddenly I sound real loud to myself. So anyway, uh, we're going to be in Luke 13 this morning, Luke chapter 13. They said I'd introduce my family. But my family doesn't like to hear me preach, so they left. Particularly the little girls say, Daddy, we don't want to hear the preaching to the people. Um, so, uh, you know, you need some... Cre- yeah, it's good to have your daughters not like your preaching. It makes you try harder. Um, so they're not here, but you probably saw them at the meals, and if you want to introduce them, they're fun to have here. Um, we're going to read, uh, <clears throat> beginning actually, not in Luke 13, but in actually Luke 12, verse 54. And I want to tell you what we're reading before I read it. Um, Jesus, in his day when he preached, 90% of the time was outside. Sometimes he was in a synagogue, but most of the time he was outside. Almost always uh, in the area of a hill, either he was standing on the hill and they could see him on the flat, or they were sitting on a hill and he was at the bottom. And in that day, unlike our day, um, everyone who spoke publicly would be interrupted by those listening. It was just standard. It wasn't considered rude. In fact, a lot of the teaching that goes on, if you really look closely in the Gospels, or you pay a lot of money to go to seminary and learn this, is someone said, they asked him, the disciples said, and, the, and then you get you know, teaching from Jesus. So it's sort of important that you see that here, Jesus is teaching in a setting... And a lot of people are listening to him. And there's a question asked in the very middle of his teaching. And I want to show you what he does with it. The question really is a question that Jesus uses to get to repentance. It's really strange that Jesus uses this question to get to repentance. Um, And I want you to see the question how he uses it. So let me begin Luke chapter 12 verse 54. This is Jesus. 
Jesus said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when in the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the, appear- interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky? How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, there were some present at that time who were told who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Are those 18 who died when the tower in Salaam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us His word. Jesus, we thank You for food to eat. And we thank You that You feed us not only with food, but with Your word. We ask Jesus that all of us here would have the work of the Holy Spirit, giving us understanding of this particular part of the Bible, uh, renewing our hearts, making our hearts more like you, Jesus, helping us to die to our sins. And Jesus, if we don't understand you, if we don't know about you, if we're confused, would you give us clarity? Jesus, if we know about you, if we've followed you, would you give us a stronger faith in you? Would you give us clearer direction in believing in you? And would you help us? Jesus, all of us are helpless before you. And so we pray in your name. We ask that you would help us. Amen. In my job, I travel for a living, and I would like for you to go back to one of my, to go back with me to one of my toughest moments traveling. We live in Knoxville, Tennessee, Marissa and I and the children, and I travel out of McGee Tyson Airport. That's just, the, that's just a fancy word for, for the Knoxville Airport. And the Knoxville Airport has a three-level garage, and they've built a new terminal. It's actually a pretty wonderful airport to fly out of. But I would like you to go last spring in April with me to the third story of that parking garage. And I would like you to see in your mind's eye me. And I want you to see laying around me a golf travel case. You know that there are these big cases. You put your golf clubs in them. And you can take your golf clubs where you go on the airplane. And it's open. And laying beside it is are the golf clubs, the bag and the clubs. And all the clubs are pulled out of the bag and laid out. And everything in the golf bag itself is pulled out. And then you have a shirt pile. You have a pants pile. You have an underwear pile. And then you have tons of travel product that I use. Um, 
There's a rain jacket balled up uh, and several other things. And you, if you were to see me, and I, this is my uh, my uh, my pockets were pulled out, and at one point I had my shirt off. Now why? <clears throat> I, I want you to see a couple things in this picture before I tell you what was going on. I want you to see. First of all, I'm a prepared traveler. I had jeans and shorts and khakis. I had my shirts and casual shirts and t-shirts. I have uh, soft soap for sensitive skin. That would be me. I have a loafer, two of them, in case one of them gets too wet and rotten and we have to dry it out because we just have to have it just right. Um, razor with extra blades, all of the three-ounce travel things, you know, all of that. Um, sound machine, my own pillowcase, don't ask. Um, I basically also travel with an apothecary. That would be Advil, Excedrin, uh, um, Tylenol, regular aspirin, um, three kinds of allergy medicine, nasal mist, saline spray. It's all there, and it's laid out. The thing about this, I'm, this is I, this really happened, and it's accurate. I had everything you need to travel except one thing: my wallet, my ID. That morning I had arisen at 3.45 because my alarm was going off at 4.15 and I don't know why this is true about me, but when the alarm's going to go off and I'm actually worried, will that wake Marissa up? I tend to wake up early, so I got up early. My stuff was packed. I went to the car. I went to the Waffle House. It's the only place to go in my mind. I had three eggs scrambled with bacon and a Diet Coke. Here's the key. I paid the bill. And when I paid the bill, I pulled my driver's license out and put it in a place that was easy to access and in my mind's eye I put the wallet in my back pocket I picked up my newspaper I paid my bill I left the Waffle House I drove to the airport I got out of the airport I was really early I was an hour and 45 minutes early you have to check in if you've got if you've got checked baggage you have to check in 30 minutes early I go to the counter no wallet well, I must have put it, you know, slipped it in the bag or had one little case with a book in it, a Bible and a book. And at this, I don't have it. So I, I, I get permission to leave my stuff there, which is unusual. I go back to my car. <laughs> Nothing. So I go back and get the stuff. I can't find my wallet. And she's like, you got 38 minutes, Mr. Stone. Clock's ticking. I go down to the car, I look for it. I then realize I need light, it's still dark. I go up to the light, and there I am. Laid out. Everything except my wallet. And here's how the story ended. I missed the plane. Just missed it. I was flying to Los Angeles to go visit Jameson Stockhouse at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I emailed him and said I won't be there today. It took me about 20 minutes to pack all up my stuff. As I zipped up the last zipper, I saw the Delta flight that I was supposed to be on take off. Where's my wallet? It's in the parking lot of the Waffle House. When I walked to the car, I stuck the paper on the top to unlock it. And I had put my wallet between the paper, and when I grabbed the paper on the end, the wallet slid perfectly out, and I backed off, and it slid off. I've been gone from... Here's the thing. I've been gone from the Waffle House for about two hours at this point. No one ran over it, and no one picked it up. It was there. I went and got it, went home, changed clothes, and went and played golf, because I couldn't get to L.A. that day. (laughs) 
I mean, what else are you going to do? I'm supposed to be flying to L.A. all day. You need to do something. Uh, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story, and I'm going to tell you a story just like it at the end of this sermon, because I think many of us in the West, and particularly in the United States, and people who would come on a retreat like this, which is wonderful, if we think about what it means to be a Christian, we have all the stuff we need. We have it. Love and grace and mercy, uh, law, about biblical knowledge, morality, carefulness. Uh, we work hard. You're great students. Uh, you have good families. And you have everything except the one thing required, which is repentance. In this passage, Jesus says something that's really amazing. You would expect Jesus to have taught on this passage and to have thought about love. But that's not what he puts at the center of the passage. You may have looked at this passage when you see what it says and thought Jesus would put there worship. But that's not what he puts at the center of this passage. There's a lot of things you may have chosen or would have thought. If we're going to talk about one thing in Christianity, just one thing, that would be your one thing. But what Jesus puts at the center of his one thing parable is repentance. And I want you to see why Jesus puts repentance at the center of this parable. What I'm going to do in this passage with you, hopefully, is show you who Jesus describes, what Jesus says about repentance, and how Jesus sees repentance working. Who Jesus describes in this passage, what He says about repentance, and how Jesus says repentance works. Now, first of all, who Jesus describes in the passage. I sort of set this up for you already. Jesus is teaching, maybe in a setting like this, but there probably would have been anywhere from 150 to 400 people. Maybe 500 or 1,000, but that was pretty rare in those days. The towns are much smaller. Not everybody can go hear the traveling crazy preacher on the side of town. So there's probably two or 300 people. And Jesus is preaching, and what He's saying is... If you look in verse 54, 55, 56, he says, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, he accuses them of. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you look at the weather, you know whether it's going to be rainy or whether it's going to be hot. Good for you. I'm here. I am the Son of Man. I am God. I am the infinite, eternal, and changeable God. And yet, you don't know what to do with me. You're confused about what to do with me. And so, in the very middle of Jesus saying, you're misunderstanding the point, in verse 1 of 13, some people stand up and tell Jesus this story. And it's a story about Pilate, the Roman ruler, going in among some of the Galileans who were worshipping. This would not have been Christian worship, this would have been pagan worship. And killing them. They were his adversaries. Now, I I want you to follow this. This is sort of important, and I would like you to enter into it. I really would like you to enter into this, both about me, about the Bible, and about the passage. Jesus is being very hard on his listeners. He's saying, hey guys, you're hypocrites. If somehow today I got up here, and in the West, and the way we preach, it doesn't... And I said, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. Everybody would go, man, he's right about the person right next to me. (laughs) 
I mean, we just sort of have this ability to throw it off. And even when you're trying to be, you know, caustic or purposely sort of attention-grabbing, we have this ability to sort of slough it off. No one called a crowd in that day hypocrites. Nobody except Jesus. He calls them whitewashed tombs. And Jesus says, hypocrites, you know what to do with the sky, but you don't know what to do with me. And somebody stands up and should have said, what's the question? Jesus, what do you want us to do with you? It's the obvious question. It's like somebody standing there with their, you know, with their hood open, smoke, maybe even fire coming out, and you pulling up and go, do you need help? And them going, Who's winning the American League Championship Series? The question doesn't follow. They need help about this. There's fire. How do I get the fire out? And yet they say, hey Jesus, there was a political killing last week. What do you think about it? Now come on. You know what's going on. It's the same thing that that person in your former relationship asked you when they could tell you were thinking about breaking up with them, but were afraid... You were afraid to tell them, Hey, are you feeling insecure about this relationship? What do you want to eat tonight? Hey, do you still want to go out with me? Man, I really like your shoes. They're dodging the question. Don't dodge this question. And so Jesus says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? That's not the question they asked. So they asked Jesus, what color is the sky? Let me tell you about nuclear fission. That's what Jesus does. Do you think they were sinners and that's why they died? No, verse 3, unless you repent, you'll all perish. Jesus ups the ante. What about... 18 people who died when a tower in Siloam fell on. What do we know about this tower in Siloam? Nothing. We just know that in that day, widely circulated, some poor people were standing by a tower in this town. It fell on them and killed them. That's what we know. Probably men, women, and children. Probably. Unless it happened to be the front tower where only men were. And Jesus says, So... Here's an incident that wasn't brought about by man, it was brought about by God. The first incident is brought about by man. The second incident is brought about by God. And y'all want to know what's causing this. And Jesus says, I don't care what's causing this. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Now, John, you just told us a lot of stuff. What do you want us to do with this? I want you to see that Jesus is talking to you. If In this point, and you, I may not be this good, you're sitting here thinking, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. Stop! The point is not for them, it is for you. And until you turn this passage simply to you, not to your mother, not to your father, not to your boy or girlfriend, not to your roommate whose guts you hate, not to them, not to the professor that bugs the crud of you. This passage is about you. And what Jesus is saying is, you have a lot of reasons to dismiss both me and my word, both as non-Christians and as Christians. You can find a lot of questions that are tough to answer. You can find lots of circumstances in your life that would prevent you from trusting me. And Jesus says this, unless you repent, you will perish. This is what Jesus is saying. What about you? What about you? This passage is intentionally focused on you. So many Bible passages aren't. Look up. The fields are white for harvest. Consider, Jesus says all the time, what about, but not here, not here. Jesus says, I know what your questions are and I know what the answers are. 
Jesus says, I know that your life has been tough, that towers have fallen on you and you don't know why. I know that. I know about them. In fact, I planned them to fall. If you really want, if you really want to get honest, Jesus says later, I, yeah, I planned it to fall. Jesus says about his own death, I planned it. I planned it to suffer. I know all that. But that isn't the question of Scripture. What about you? Have you repented? When I was a campus minister, like your wonderful campus ministers, I was at Bellhaven. There are two things that, that you really deal with a lot in campus ministry. Really three. Really four. The, the easiest and most often is your parents. The next one is your life calling. And then the two, those are fine. Stop fearing your parents so much and doing everything they say. They're ruining your life. And um, it doesn't matter what you major in. Only one in nine of you will work in your major field after three years out of college. Yeah, you're wasting your time. Sorry. Uh, Some of us just paid a lot less to waste our time than you are. But that's another discussion. The The two things that drive you out of being a campus minister are who you're dating this second. Uh, don't care. Stop kissing them. You probably won't marry them. And then the number one thing that drives you out of campus ministry is your abject loathing of your roommate. At this point, let wicked cue, loathing play, this is what you feel about your roommate. You hate your roommate. Now, some of you go, John, I don't hate my roommate. I know that. But how many of you have a story about moving in with your good friend and now they're your mortal enemy that you struggle to pray for? And so what you do as a campus minister is they walk into your, to your life in this one-on-one and they go, Jason, I, I don't know what to do about this roommate. Which means I want to murder my roommate. Uh, and it can, the, the best one are sort of the completely anal metrosexual guy and the addicted to we guy. This is the worst sort of combination. Except for the girl borrowing clothes on cleaning roommate and the OCD girl roommate. That is a look. Those are both thermonuclear. The answer to the question is move out today. That's all. But for those two, if that's your combination, the gospel is powerful enough for you to forgive them later in life. But today it doesn't have much for you. There's not much for you today. And so I would sit there and say, well, you know, you need to confront them. All that did was get people mad. Well, you need to pray for them. All that did was get you mad. I could never really sort of get at this problem until I preached on this passage. And it occurred to me, ah, this, is, this passage is the problem with roommates. So, so this is what I did. And I'm ruining it for your, you know, your campus ministers because they can't do it to you. But when someone came in and got going on the roommate, I would feed the fire. Oh, I bet that's terrible. I'd throw a little gasoline on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't wash. Throw a little kerosene on it. I mean, in 30 minutes, I would have them boiling about this. Just They were just loving me. Oh, just, this roommate's terrible. Oh, this looks horrible. And I'd say, oh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to make a list of everything that drives you crazy about this roommate. I want, I want you to come back to me and I want to talk about it. Oh, and they would just love that. Ah, And they just... And they just making that list as they walk out the door. And they'd come back the next week and I'd, I'd be really changed. And they could tell. They would sort of hand me the list and I'd go, that's a great list and you got it all. I got it all. I said, here's the deal. I'll go talk to your roommate for you when you make a list one longer than this list about your sins towards that roommate. No one ever took me up on it. See, the reason we have roommates, the reason we get angry at roommates, is because we don't want to deal with us. 
The reason we ask about who's running for president when it doesn't matter is because we don't want to deal with us. I see the problem with the world today. You. There's a Puritan who prays this. It's an amazing prayer. You can find it in Valley of Vision. He says, Lord, forgive me, for I have made my... My, I think he starts at the level of room. Basically, the room I'm in, my home, my town, my county, my country, my world, your kingdom, all the worse for my sins. The world suffers because of me. Now, I have to be honest with you. Anybody that can pray that well, I don't think the world is suffering from, but he understood this passage. Your rage against people who have done you injustice is sometimes legit. There are real injustices in the world. There's real pain in the world. And I, I want you to know I know that. But in general, your outrage about the other is really your own unwillingness to repent. By the way, most people who kept their list and thought about what I said somehow mysteriously suddenly got along with their roommate. Why does Jesus say to you, first... Take the speck out of the board out of your own eye, then you can deal with the speck in your brother's eye. Jesus isn't actually saying, when you have more sin than someone else, you can help them. Jesus is saying, until your sin looks gigantic to you, you're useless to other people. See, most of us here can really list the sins of our friends really well, and in detail, and sort of graphic detail. And there's a part of us that sort of really makes us happy. But we can't do that for ourselves. Of course you should know your you should know your sin better than you know your roommates. Why? When I holler at my wife unjustly, or when my wife hollers at me unjustly, all of you gonna think all we do is holler in the in my home. And that's sort of true. When I when I really react to her sinfully and she reacts, all I see in her is this outward reaction. Here's what I know about me. There were all kind of other thoughts that I didn't let come out. See, the problem in your relationships, the problem in your world, the problem in your life is you. And this, and by the way, all of you who, I hope some of you do want to get married, it only gets about eight times worse when you get married. Because you actually can see a little more into their heart and you're just completely frustrated all the time with them. Not wanting to repent yourself. See, the passage says this. You need to repent. Two applications, second point. First application. If you're a Christian today, someone who follows Jesus, who has believed in Jesus, believed He's your substitute, you need to recognize this. Repentance wasn't about when you became a Christian. It's also about today. And if you're not a Christian... I want you to stop being confused. As a non-Christian, you can say, they want me to live a better life. They want me to quit committing these sins. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's fine. They want me to go to church and listen to real old music. That's probably true too. No. We want you to see that before Jesus, the eternal and unchangeable King of the universe, you are completely guilty. And that His wrath will be poured out on you unless you flee to Jesus for salvation and protection. That's what we want you to see. 
You don't have to educate your children a certain way if you become a Christian. You do not have to go to a particular church if you become a Christian. But you have to see that the heart of the Christian message is you need to repent before the beautiful holiness of God. And that's who Jesus is describing in this passage. But I want you to see what he says about repentance because it's a little more alarming. Jesus tells on this parable. He says, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should I use it up? Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Then cut it down. A couple of points that would not be obvious to you in this passage. Whenever Jesus tells a story, his stories always conform to Old Testament law. In other words, if Jesus tells any parable, the people in the parable, unless they're the antagonist, are obeying the law. It's really a strange thing. But especially he tends to be this, this true about agriculture. I'll prove this to you later. All, I'm telling you that why. The guy in the parable who's coming to look for fruit has not simply been looking for three years. He's been looking for eight years. In the Old Testament it says when you plant a tree, let it grow for five years before you harvest the fruit and then harvest it sixth, seventh, and eighth year. Which means this guy had not looked for fruit on this tree simply for three years but for eight He just wasn't willing to pick it the first five years. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because you need to see this fig tree. So come with me again in your mind's eye. Wipe away all of your Birmingham Southern, all of your UAB, and all of your Samford pretty, really nice places, and go with me to the Middle East and stand in a desert. Maybe stand on a hill and look with me at a fig vineyard. It's really beautiful. And this is what it looks like. It looks like a sea of green in a brown land. And there are probably three to 500 fig trees in it. And when fig trees grow, they grow together. In fact, their limbs often intertwine. And they want their roots to intertwine. And if you stood on this hill and you looked at the fig at the vineyard, you would not be able to pick out this tree. Now, why am I saying that to you? Because when I read the parable, I thought it was the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, fig tree, right? It's not producing fruit, so it's that pitiful... I mean, you'd stand on the hill and you'd go, there's a gap in there. You know, there's like... One of those fig trees is missing, and you'd go up and go, oh, the poor little fig tree. I mean, it's just tiny. You know, it needs a little help, a little water. No, 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 no. That's the very... He looked for fruit on it. You would not look for fruit on the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. He looked for fruit for eight years. So, this is important. The fig tree has the same height as the other fig trees. It has the same width. It has the same limb configuration. It has the same leaves. The only thing it lacks is actually the fruit, the fig itself. So standing on the hill, you you can't tell. Now why is that important? Because this is what Jesus is teaching and most of us don't like it. This is what He's teaching. You can be missional, you can be theological, you can be amazingly loving, you can give tons of money away, you can die for someone else, but if you don't have repentance, you're not a Christian. Jesus is doing something He doesn't do anywhere else. He's taking repentance 
And He's lifting it up as the fruit through which you enter the Christian life. And He's also lifting it up and He's saying to you, it is the fruit that actually produces all the rest of the fruits. Now that's another sermon. It's actually a pretty interesting sermon. I don't have time. But essentially Jesus is saying, unless you repent, you'll be impatient. Unless you repent, you'll be angry and not kind. Unless you repent... You won't be loving. You won't really be missional. You really won't understand theology. You really won't understand the Bible. You'll just be a really good-looking dead person. In fact, <coughs> sir, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around and fertilize it. If there's fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down and burn it in the fire. Jesus is saying if you have every fruit that the Bible describes, but you lack repentance, you're not a Christian. Now, um, let's do this. Let's do it this way. So, I'm at Clemson. We all had to get our... This is 1984, 1988, before there was like, you know, running water, electricity, or the internet, anything important. Certainly not Facebook. We actually talked to our friends back then. Um, our bad. We sat with them, got to know them, you know. Um, took some time to go see who they were. Hey, how are you? Me look, oh, can I talk to you anyway? Um, another sermon. Uh, we had to go to the Exxon to fix our cars. There wasn't Pet Boys. There wasn't a Firestone. So my, my boy Dave Kuhn takes his car to get it fixed at the Exxon. And when he goes to pick it up, in front of him is a Tridel. Now, if you're in a story, that's fine. I'm not picking on story girls. But how do we know she's a Tridel? Well, she had the Tridel bow. Uh, she had the Tridel shirt. She had the Tridel shorts. She, in those days, she had the Tridel key ring with your... You had to have your ID and your license with you. Tridel. I mean, she had Tridel shoelaces. That's what sort of gave it away. She was a Tridel. And... Uh, <laughs> She's picking her car up. They called David to come get his car. And sort of, you got to go to the picture. There's an Exxon guy with his shirt open, probably from New Jersey, the chain, sort of the too much chest hair, overweight, smoking a cigar. I mean, the truth is he fit the stereotype perfectly. He is the stereotype. And he comes and he says to her, Honey, you know, do you, do you know how to take care of your car? And at this point, Dave Kuhn, my friend, says he, he's blown away because she goes through this long list. She goes, Absolutely. I think his name was Eddie. She was absolutely Eddie. And uh, she just rolls off this list of things her daddy's taught her to do about a car. She checks the air pressure in a car. Uh, she checked the, uh, you know, the, uh, oh, crud. What, do you, what keeps it warm, cold? Cool and antifreeze. Thank you, antifreeze. Preacher jam up, antifreeze. Um, she had the spark plugs changed. That, that's hard to believe, but she did. Um, she checked her transmission fluid. She checked her wiper fluid, you know. She had, I checked my little air pressure. I mean, her dad had sat her down, sent her to college to be a Tridel, and had prepared her for car. And what she had was, and the Tridels at Clemson are very red. This is important. She had a red prelude. And in my day, in 1986, if you owned a red prelude, you were the height of car cool at school. Now, I recognize that that's changed because now it's a hybrid that won't pass anybody, but that's another discussion. If you really want to die by a hybrid and drive on any interstate, you're getting 52 miles to your death. Um, I'm all about environment. And Dave says at the end, he's like, man, i got to ask this girl out. She's out of the car. But oh, the guy behind the counter goes, but honey. And her list had been so comprehensive that it had blown Dave away. And the guy goes, honey, what about oil? Did you ever check your engine oil? And this is what she says. Oil? What oil? 
So her dad had assumed that she knew that engines run on oil because you assume it. He had not assumed that she knew about you know, air filters, oil fil- I mean, he had really taught her well, but he'd left out... You know, you can have a bad air filter, I promise you, and drive for hundreds of thousands of miles. You can. You can have a bad spark plug, and you'll go a long way. You can have a flat tire. We've seen them all over the southeast driving there 80 miles an hour with that little tire up front going, ah, my daddy said not to drive. And they're all panicked, letting them pass. Let them pass. They're going to kill them. Like, like, see, at the end of the day, none of that is what keeps you going. But if you don't change the oil in a prelude in 1986, you go 86,123.7 miles, and then you crack the engine block. She had given the car new, and she had driven it till she cracked the engine block. It had probably been out of oil for about 15,000 miles before she overheated it, and cha-ching! It's a great story. Mainly because it's true. I'd love to go back to her union and find Miss Tridell and ask her about her prelude that her daddy put a new engine in. That, guys, I really think you have to get into this about us, because that's us. Let's go on a mission trip. Uh, let's put on our Facebook page about how Christian we are, how we love the Bible. Let's, uh, let's put fish on our car. Um, let's wear Christian t-shirts. Let's get involved in a Christian group. Let's read the Bible obsessively. Let's memorize Scripture. But let's all agree not to repent. See, you can do all those other things But unless you repent, you're not a Christian. It's it's a more powerful picture. In Israel in those days, they could get a fig tree to produce figs probably ten months a year. And what they would do after ten months, they'd actually cut it back down to the roots and let it grow back. Because of the climate, because they controlled the water, because it's actually dry, they could get it to do fruit all the time. Now what does that tell us? It tells us something we really don't want... We like to talk about repentance this way. I repented of that sin. Jesus wants you to talk about repentance this way. Repentance is the most natural thing a Christian does. Let's be practical. And with my wife here, this is hard to do for both she and I. The word that ought, that ought to most be used by a Christian is, I'm sorry. It's probably the word that's hardest to say. Can you admit that? I'm sorry. I was wrong. We don't want to say to people, we're wrong. What G, you know, we're not talking about it. We're, I mean, we, when we talk about something like repentance, we're all over these ideas of justification and sanctification. God having declared us to be free of sin, free of the penalty of sin, and then God causing us to die to sin and live to Jesus more and more and follow Him. We're all over those ideas. But this passage is really sort of pushing you at the heart and it's saying you can tend to fake these. You can't fake the work of Jesus. You can fake these. But until you become broken about you, until you give up on making the perfect you, you haven't found where Jesus is liberating you. Jesus is trying to liberate you by teaching you to say, I'm sinful. I'm broken. This ought to be in everybody's marriage ceremony, and and I have encouraged people to try it, but most moms will not let us. But it needs to be there. When you're exchanging your vows, there needs to be a line that each person says, 
Forgive me ahead of time for deeply disappointing you, for I bring to this marriage a multitude of sins for which I cannot rid myself. My wife and I love each other more today than we've ever loved. There's no doubt about that. And we're madder at each other than we've ever been in our lives. Thank you. See, the married people went... You know why? Because we really want, I really wanted Marissa to make me okay. And here's, the pro, here's why she couldn't. I brought me to the marriage. You really wanted this roommate to give you a better experience. Here's the trouble. You brought you along. You keep breaking up with people because you think they're the one and then you discover they're not. Because what you discover is your own shame in admitting to them that you will not satisfy them on any level. That you will not be for them what they want. And you, in fact, cannot be for them what they need. Because you are not Jesus. And you keep discovering at the end of every 4.0 when your dad says, Now try harder next semester that you not only want to shoot him through the face, but you want to beat him with an inch of your life. But you have no place to talk about this because you have no real doctrine of sin to say, Quit abusing me by telling me to be perfect because I know I'm the opposite. I'm imperfect in every way. See, really, the liberty of of the gospel and the liberty of being a Christian is this. I am a failure. It is our first and really the heart of our confession as Christians. I'm a sinner. And I am deeply disappointing to Marissa. And I am deeply disappointing to my children. I know for a fact that my children will have to talk to a pastor, hopefully not the level of counselor, but if we go there, we've got savings accounts, so that a counselor can go, gosh, it seems like you thought your dad was perfect when really he's just a bum. I'm just a bum. My sin, my Sarah Stone will have to go, Dad, I forgive you for the way you raised me. You're going, what did you do to him? What are you doing to them? Hugging them, kissing them, taking them to Dollywood all the time, taking them to, you know, Walt Disney, giving them clothes, letting them dance. That's what I'm doing. I mean, we're going to Hawaii. I'm, I'm saving. I'm preaching here to go to Hawaii. I'm giving them all of them. Send them to the right schools. Put pressure on them. Don't, that's what I'm doing to them. I'm just being me. I'm not doing something dark and sinister. I'm me. And what I'm giving them is a broken, sinful human being who is disappointing to them. And until all of us begin to see that all of those fruits are not enough unless repentance is at the heart of who we are, that we're like that red prelude. We look good. We look good. We look very marriable. We look very hireable. One day it's going to crack and they're going to see that we're really broken. By the way, when you really sort of enter into relationships this way, I, I, I don't mean, you know, loving, dating relationships. I mean any relationship. relationship. Your professor is going to deeply disappoint you. Your roommate is going to deeply disappoint you. When you really enter in with your wife with the notion that you're both sinful and that the first thing you have to deal with is forgiveness, you got a chance. A chance. And any of you who have divorced parents recognize that no matter what happened in that divorce, adultery... They just grew apart. At the core of what was going on was they despised one another and could no longer forgive each other. It wasn't the actions. Many people overcome adultery. They do. One person commits adultery and the couple becomes happier. It seems impossible. They really do. These couples are... Why? Because both of them recognized 
uh, I both could have done this and it's got to be forgiven and that wasn't the issue anyway because the reason you committed adultery is because I wouldn't forgive you or I held you to this perfect standard no one can live in. Most of you will never even get even close to the core of your sexual identity issues. And you all have them until you begin to assume that someone's going to have to forgive you deeply. Until you sort of cast this dark veil over your wedding, you have no chance. You have no chance. You're just going to be, you're going to be like all the people I married, you're going to get married, and a year later you're going to be so mad that I'm going to be wondering if there are guns at home loaded. Not for, not for themselves, but for the other. See, at the heart of what Jesus is bringing, and it's not fun, is repentance. <clears throat> Which makes me my last point. How does Jesus think repentance works? Jesus thinks repentance works this way. In verse 8, there's a gardener. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. You have to do two things to have repentance in your life. You have to have some things cut off and you have to have some things added. You have to have some things cut off and some things added. Some of the things are going to have to be cut off from you. Could this twerp a little bit more? Here we go. Some of the things you're going to have to have taken away are your gifts. Some of you are actually so smart, or said in a postmodern way, so good at understanding the present system under which you're being oppressed and don't know it, that you can succeed in it really well. You always make A's. You're always the captain. Or maybe better, because you're a Christian, you're always the vice captain. Always. Just that second servant. I mean, you're so precious and lovely and wonderful that you don't recognize how dark you are. Some of your families have deceived you, and not in the way that I described earlier, where you have a parent who is so beating you up about performance because they're living through you because they don't have a life. You're their life, and if you don't succeed, they don't succeed. It's not that. You actually have a perfect family. I'll tell you, there's only one bad person to marry in this world, and that's somebody from a perfect family. Because they think they want to take your sorry little behind and bring you into their wonderful family, and they'll be really happy when you're with that psychotic group of nice people who don't have any sort of reference for sin or forgiveness. They just get along together. I'm telling you, find a nice family, and he or she asks you out, run to the divorce family. Because the divorce family is going, yeah, we messed this whole thing up, we're just praying for y'all and hoping you make it. That's a way better situation to be in at Christmas, rather than the whole Christmas tradition, which involves perfection and your happiness being met, and you're sitting there going, these people are going to murder each other one day if they're perfect. I'm serious. Some of you got to be delivered from your perfect family. Some of you are going to have to be delivered. Really, you're going to have to have cut away from you the thing you want most in this life. To be a dancer, to be a football player, to be an engineer, to be a doctor, to be a mother. Because it's the pursuit of that that keeps you from any notion that you're broken. But you're also going to have some things added. That's what Jesus says. I mean, the, the, the gardener here, who's clearly representative of the work of Jesus, says, let me dig around it and fertilize it. And I'm going to cheat just to hear here. Certain, I mean, this is other places in the Bible. I'm admitting it's not in this passage. But clearly Jesus thinks 
some things have to be added. What, what ha- I mean, at base, what has to be added? Number one, what has to be added is a sense of brokenness in your life. I would encourage all of you, as one application of this passage, to read Psalm 51 over and over. Because in that psalm, David says, You do not delight in sacrifices or bring it. You do not want burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit of God. Now look, you've all had a broken spirit before. For lots of good reasons. Someone passed away in your life. I mean, you, you failed something that you really wanted or you didn't... I mean, it, these are legitimate brokenness. But you see someone else's life destroyed by death. Or, and, and the hard part about Christianity is Jesus is saying, I'm trying to take you there for you to stay there. Now look, I, look... That doesn't mean there's no joy. Marissa and, I, Marissa and I don't sort of get in bed at night and weep uncontrollably and go, this is the best day of our lives. Our children hate us. And, you know, I'm, not, I'm not denying that we have... I mean, we just have wonderful memories in our life. And probably some of them are, are us recognizing, I'm messing this up. I mean, you've got to add on some level this notion that... Your pursuit of Jesus to sort of be the last link in your perfect chain is what the Old Testament calls idolatry. And you don't have a wooden pole, but you do in your, you know, in your dorm room. You're worshiping something that's not Jesus. Because when you worship Jesus, you get filleted wide open. You don't get the perfect chain. You begin to rec- you begin to go to some of your best friends and go, I'm so sorry I'm your friend. They're like, I love you. They're like... Well, then you don't get it, because I'm still so sorry I'm your friend. I'll tell you something else you're going to have to add. You're going to have to add reading the Bible. See, when you begin to really read the Bible and recognize sort of two things, Jesus is exalting himself here, and I'm being cut open here. A couple things happen. You quit reading the Bible out of obligation, like I've got to have a quiet time, whatever that is, and I've got to go find out about reality. That there is a king, and I don't want to follow him. I would say you also have to ultimately add worship. I want to tie this to this theme tonight. And again, in the, in, throughout the New Testament, Old Testament, I'm sort of proud of this. I learned this from. Um, oh, crud! I went to say it. Who's the classic theonomist? Who's the class? Not not Bonson. Borsted, older than Bonson. Who is it? Rush Dooney. I learned this from Rush I'm so proud of this. I learned this from Rush Dooney. Uh, Sabbath, salvation, and you are, are met in rest. Now, here's what I mean. Most of you have a quiet time this way. You look at what you have to do to today, and you squeeze it. Because you're sort of good little Pharisees, probably especially at sort of the fake Christian Sanford and Birmingham Southern schools, don't hit me. You squeeze it in there. Come on, relax. Auburn's way more Christian than both of you. Just kidding. Um, You squeeze it, and it's a duty. Here's how you read the Bible. You open it up, and you read it until you want to stop. And you don't plan for it, because the intention of meeting God is for you to stop. Repentance is ultimately rest. And the reason most of you struggle with this notion of reading the Bible is that it is the opposite for you. It is ultimate duty. See, you have to read the Bible by faith, which means, which means literally you might say, I'm going to study 45 minutes left for that test. I might make an A minus. 
Like if you feel that today, I beg you to drop out of school and work for, at Shoney's for at least six months. I'm serious. If you feel like, if you were to sort of do something to stop and rest and actually smell a rose, and that would cause you to have A minus, and your whole body revolts against that, do yourself to run from wherever you are to somewhere else. That is not the Holy Spirit. That is demonic oppression in your life. And yes, parents, you can quote me on that. See, when's the last time one of you looked at a friend dying and thought, i got to stand with him tonight, and that biology test is at 8 o'clock. B, how can I help you? And that's what Jesus did, right? To bring repentance, Jesus said, Jesus is having a blast in heaven. You know, heaven's a big party. There's a river of wine in the thing. You know this, don't you? Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about, the pl- there's a, how are we going to not remember all the bad stuff? The place is marked by a river of wine, okay? I mean, <laughs> if you're not 21, you can't drink. This is no, you know, no, no underage drinking. I'm t- but I'm just saying, this picture here is, there's a party in eternity, and Jesus was inviting us to it, and we decided to hate it. <laughs> and so here we are. <laughs> And Jesus said, crud, they're lost. Let me go get them. He gave up A, B, C, D, and E. He failed. He, he left everything that he longed for. And you see him longing for it again. What does he say? You only hear Jesus really pray, I think, selfishly once. Restore to me the joy that was mine before I was incarnate. Where was Jesus' heart? In the party. But he gave it up for you. I have a question. Does your sinfulness and your own struggle ever cause you to say, I can make a B. I can add less. See, I, I'm, I'm doing this counterintuitively because I'm going to beat you up a lot on this. I'm going to add something less to find something more. I'm going to repent to Jesus. See, what Jesus is teaching us is this. Repentance is the gateway to normality. And if any of you would be honest enough, you just want to be normal, you want to be whole, you want to be who you were made to be. When I was in seminary in St. Louis, um, I got a job working in the local neighborhood. I couldn't figure out why. I, like, I, I, this lady put up a, a, a um, you know, a, a help wanted, just a piece of paper on a note on a, on a board at Covenant Seminary, and I took it and called her. I got this field I need cleared. Would you clear it? Sure. What do you charge? And I, $8 an hour. Oh, yeah, come on. Well, within two weeks, I had like 50 calls. Because all the people in that neighborhood, if I'd known this, were charging $25 an hour. So I was the new cheap labor. And so I just, you know, tons of calls. And so I ended up working for this really wonderful Jewish man who fit every Jewish stereotype ever. And he was a great friend. He loved me, but he was... OCD would be sort of a good day for him. But whenever I came to his house, I remember I parked my little Honda Escort 5-speed and get out. He always meet me with the list. John, good to have you. How you doing? It's very good. Okay, and off we go. My best moment was I clipped his ivy. This is awesome. And he came out and said, this piece is not an inch and a half below the brick. Well, let me get that right for you. Inch and a half. Because he had said, I thought he meant about it, and I just sort of walked. He meant no measure it, John. But anyway, he always told me, 
that his neighbor was crazy. But I never, you know, when I pulled up to his house, it was just a house that somebody was keeping up. Fine. So one day I pulled up to us, this is awesome. The dude's on the roof in his underwear clucking. <laughs> Open the door. My, my employee's like, John, get in here. So I run into the garage and we close the door and then we... I really want to see this replay in heaven. We open the window and we stare at him. He's pretty sure like two Jewish women. We know watching the night. We're just staring at him. And we're just starting to gossip about him. We're just becoming just, you know, you think he's crazy. He's crazy. At this point, his son drives up, goes, gets him off the roof, carries him down. And I would have thought nothing else about it. I'm sure I've had other bad experiences in life, but, you know, hope he's okay. Off I go to my inch and a half along the ivy. About three weeks later, when I pull up to go to work, the neighbor's standing in the driveway, clothed. When I get out of the car, I notice that my guy doesn't run out to greet me because he's scared of this guy. And the guy says, Hey, John, I'd like to meet you. Your boss told me that you saw me the other day on the roof clucking in my underwear. I was like, I did. Good to meet you, clucker in the underwear guy. How you doing? He engaged me. He's just completely normal. I mean, he's Jason Sterling. He's just perfectly normal guy. No. He's Tom. He's anybody. He's me. He's just normal. And at some point, he reaches in his pocket. He says, I need to tell you something. I'm crazy. It's like, wow. That's incredibly helpful. I already knew that. He says, and here's why I'm crazy. He had something. If your dad or mom's a, a you know, medical doctor or psychiatrist, they would know what this is. But he had something. It wasn't bipolar. It wasn't schizophrenia. But it was something. And if he took this pill, he never had it. So he told me, he said, see this pill, John? This pill makes me sane. He said, here's the strange thing. I always take it for a period of time, six months, nine months, sometimes two years, and I think, I don't need this silly pill. And I quit taking it. So here's what happens when he quits taking it. One time he got arrested on a bus in St. Louis in a fur coat and nothing else. He was not exposing himself. They discovered that when they got him to the police station. Ended up in Columbia, Missouri, driving around. And he just was driving around the circle in downtown Columbia, Missouri, and they arrested him. At the airport, but he didn't have money, couldn't fly anywhere. He loses his mind and becomes somebody else. He says, John, here's the dumb thing. I know this makes me normal. And yet, sooner or later, I'm going to put it away. That's you in repentance. If you think about the times in your life when God has convicted you of sin, and you've been broken, you've been loving, you've been full of forgiveness, you've been normal. And then you try to get out of that place, and you become what we are, judgmental, workaholic, Unloving. See, the thing that Jesus gives us that really makes us normal is repentance. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we pray that our repentance would glorify You and that we in every way would follow You as You change our hearts. And we pray this, Jesus, in Your name. Amen. Remember that after we sing and make announcements, if you're interested in being an intern, I'm going to be out there at the uh, picnic table. Thanks.